Welcome to the UX Curious Podcast, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of UX design across different industries. I'm your host, Christina Lutkin, and today I'm curious what it is like to work as a UX designer for the government. And going even deeper, did you know there are designers working in the fisheries and oceans industry? Before I introduce our next guest, please don't forget to click on the subscribe button if you enjoy the episode. Our guest today is Ariel Mafson, Design Manager at Oceans and Fisheries Canada. Let's dive in. Welcome, Ariel. I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a bit about your background and journey into UX design? Yeah, of course. So my name's Ariel. I am still fairly new to UX, which is kind of interesting, but the path has been a really wild one, a roller coaster, as I've kind of learned is the case for most people in UX. So I started actually, I kind of count the beginning of my career back when I was in post-production advertising, which really gave me kind of a solid foundation of, you know, media production, content design, everything right down to file management. And I worked in that industry for a couple of years and took a break to kind of reevaluate my purpose and what brought me fulfillment. I ended up making pickles for two years and going back to school for user experience design through BrainStation. So that's more or less the short version of how I ended up where I am now. Okay, the pickle story sounds very interesting. I know, just a side note, yeah. <laughs> it is, we it's could like do a whole podcast. To, yeah, we need to hear about that at some point. And talking about that, oceans and fisheries is not necessarily a very popular, you know, when you get into UX and you kind of think about this career or this industry specifically, because it's not very well known. So can you t- talk us through a little bit of key milestones in your career that actually led you to the role that you have today? Yeah. So what I would say is one thing that was really beneficial from doing the boot camp that I did at BrainStation was really getting me to build my personal brand and lean into that and realize that that's okay. And that's actually something, you know, on a personal level, I really wanted to work through of, you know, letting go of judgment from others and just putting myself out there in a way that felt authentic and real. And so with that, came being a little bit more active on LinkedIn, really curating my brand there, you know, everything from like my profile picture to my header to like my little bio blurb and really getting to know that community and and networking there. So while I did, you know, I, I went into the private sector after I graduated there and that role was really pivotal because I started as a UX designer and ended up building out a little bit of a team there and became UX lead. So that was kind of like the first moment that set me up for the career where that I'm in now or the role that I'm in now. And I would say, you know, the second moment is just, I was, uh, you know, scrolling through LinkedIn, browsing the algorithm. And I came across a blog post from my current boss, who's the director of user experience at Fisheries and Oceans. And I commented on it. I found it was really interesting. I had no idea there was user experience in the government of Canada, not to knock any of their websites or applications out there, but I think we've all had some struggles renewing our passports, etc. Yeah, so it was that moment that kind of started the conversation. And I guess little known fact is that, well, to me at the time, is that all of those years of studying French in school actually came to my benefit all these years later, because to be a manager in the government, you need to be able to speak both official languages. So 
wasn't really expecting to pull that out of my back pocket, but it did come in, in good use, I would say. It's those skills that you think you don't need until the moment comes. And you always have to be prepared in a way. And sometimes opportunity meets kind of preparation. So yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. And could you describe a typical day in your role as a UX manager? Yeah, so it's very interesting. The user experience team at Fisheries and Oceans, which I'll call, we use the term DFO for sure, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So if I say DFO, it's that. It's brand new. And it's brand new. There are a couple of user experience departments kind of cropping up throughout the government at different different organizations. But at Fisheries and Oceans started about a year ago. So when I came on, it was really just me. We had a UX research manager. We had a lead for UX strategy and operations. And then my boss, the director. And a lot of it was kind of hiring, of course. We needed to, we had a lot of demand from the various product teams for UX designers, UX researchers, service designers. As some of you may know, the government hiring process or recruitment process can be extremely lengthy. So there's a lot of paperwork that goes into it, security clearances you need. So a lot of my day is that. But the exciting part for me is that I also get to still dig into some individual contributor work as needed just to kind of keep our footing, start building the processes. And of course, there's some products that are quite mature in their kind of agile use of agile frameworks and are in regular two-week sprint cadences. And so in that case, they kind of pop out to me and I get to scoot around Figma and provide mock-ups or even prototypes. I'm doing a lot of advocacy for the executives to show them who we are and what we do and start start to kind of build that center of excellence. So it's been really a a lot of diversity in my day-to-day. It's kind of unexpected, but uh, it brings a lot of joy and excitement, I think, for the government, which is a little unexpected for me too. I think it's also very exciting, the fact that you're kind of setting everything up. As you said, there was not really a department where, you know, design had the opportunity to shine and you leading and being at the forefront. I think it can be very rewarding at some points, even though I'm pretty sure it's not that easy to to kind of undertake a task like this. Yeah, it definitely has been really helpful having the right kinds of support. So coming in and already having a director who's very experienced. I mean, he's been in the government for 16 years. So let alone knowing UX, he knows the government really well and kind of how to how to work through all of the cracks and crevices and the policy, which is all new to me. But yeah, it's been really helpful to have that support. It makes a big difference when you're trying to build something from the ground up. And you did talk about, you know, policy and a bit of restrictions. So, and you also had a role, like you worked as a designer outside of the government as well. So now being as a, you know, a design manager in government, how does differ, you know, compared to being in the private sector? In some ways, yes, there is, there are more restrictions in terms of policy. It can be a challenge to keep that in mind at all times. But I think it's also a really good practice, whether you're a designer working in a government where there's tons of red tape, tons of, you know, policies and mandates to meet. And then in the private sector, where it's a little bit more as it comes, and you don't really know if something's incorrect or wrong until it's kind of the last moment, a little more fly by the seat of your pants, I guess, than the government. So I think there's just no way to know all of the policies, even if you have been in government for 
for 16 years. And it's always a moving target. These policies are always shifting, changing, adapting to try and be better for the people who they're meant for. And so good practices like, you know, never including any classified information in in Figma, that's something that, you know, I, yes, it's policy, but I would take it with me kind of wherever I go. It's always good practices to just have like fake names, fake data. You never want to have that in a compromising position where you're going to violate an, an NDA or anything, which is also very common in the, in the private sector. So while there's in some ways more restrictions, I would say the ultimate thing is like the timing. It, it can take a long time for things to be procured. For example, like I was lucky that Figma was available for me on the day that I started because my boss had already put in like eight to 10 months of work to get that procured and ready for us to go. It takes a very long time to get the tools we need that in that sense, you have to have a lot of kind of foresight, hence why we have a whole role for strategy and operations and actually a whole team. So it's interesting you say that it's kind of the things that we take for granted, waiting eight to nine months to have access to figure it. And I think that's something you would even think about. I think when we start our roles as designer, you kind of expect it to be there, especially the tools. So yeah, it's very interesting to know and props to your boss for being able to yeah. bring it and make it available. And you did touch on this, but what are some unique challenges you face as a design manager in your current role? You know, there's building up the team is is a big challenge. While there's a big, I mean, the market is, as we know, kind of strange right now and, and tough for junior mm-hmm. designers. But I think that is, it's still a challenge finding the right people especially because we need people who are going to be able to be strong advocates and kind of sit within that ambiguity as we build this up and as we, you know, come into a product that is still working in a project framework, right? We're trying to kind of shift that from project to product. And we have a, a fantastic Agile Center of Excellence who's doing that training, but still finding those people who are kind of self-led, self-motivated, autonomous, and yeah, able to sit with that like uncomfortableness of of ambiguity. One of the quotes that I always have that echoes through my mind from the boot camp that I did from one of my instructors was embrace the ambiguity. And I feel like that is more true than ever within the government. But you know, finding people who are amazing storytellers is something that is still few and far between. You know, a lot of people understand that that's a really important characteristic of a UX designer or or trait, I suppose, but there's a difference between understanding that and being able to do it in a compelling way and advocating for a new practice for people who have been in the government for 20, 30, 40 years and are on the verge of retirement and have done things a certain way. It's uh, You really need to bring all the bells and whistles to your presentations and, and be able to move them ultimately. So that's a big challenge, but also a fun one, I think. I'm also curious in regarding stakeholders. Who are your stakeholders in, in you know fisheries and oceans? Is it do you collaborate with scientists? Do you collaborate with domain experts? Who are the people you have to share design and advo- advocate designs for? There are a, a plethora of stakeholders across all different you know departments, from the internal users to external users, the public. We have. The DFO also consists of the Canadian Coast Guard. So we have people out at sea, seagoing employees. We have the Indigenous people who have been fishing and 
protecting these coastlines since before, you know, Canada was even called Canada. And everything from, you know, it's a, that's a whole other avenue that I could go down. It's like talking to the public, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> it's really challenging. But right now, you know, we have everyone from subject matter experts who are usually kind of a, a per product basis will have a subject matter e- expert. And we have data stewards, we have, yes, scientists, marine biologists, all kinds of stakeholders and people who have a, a wide range of backgrounds and experience and lots of varying needs. I'm assuming they're also involved in the user research process. So I'm curious, how does, how does user research work and how is it different from the private sector? Kind of going back to our, our chat about procurement earlier, that's actually one thing we're working on procuring right now is kind of our, our tool for research repository and for usability testing. So I think we're looking at Maze, but again, it's, it's been a process and it's a process to get that set up at an enterprise level. So that, that's, you know, to begin with, there are a lot of imperative aspects to privacy that we have to consider. Of course, different classifications of information and protecting that information. So we have to have very kind of bulletproof consent forms and privacy statements at the beginning of any usability testing. Of course, there are challenges too with some of the stuff, the work that is done on internal devices, because we're all logged into DFO network, VPN. And I would say, from what I've heard, a challenge because we're not there yet. It's been a lot of discovery work for our researchers and a little bit of usability testing and user testing, but that's all been with internal employees. And a lot of these people are also, you know, fishers, data stewards, subject matter experts, people who have been on the shore, on the shores, on the docks, on the boats, but still getting in contact with those people who are, you know, fishing in a northern remote village in Quebec is part of the vision. It's just not there yet. And it'll take a lot of navigating policies and making sure that all of those individuals are protected and that their data is thoroughly protected and and stored properly. So lots of hurdles. And I think our user research team does have it cut out for them, but it's a really, really interesting world. And there's so much to uncover there. I mean, it's just kind of been the same way for you know, 30 plus years at Fisheries and Oceans, a lot of these applications are kind of ready to burst at the seams or already are. So a bit odd. Time is nigh. (laughs) (laughs) And given the diverse range of users and the ones that you mentioned as well, how do you ensure the work that you do is accessible and inclusive to everyone? Yeah. So the government of Canada itself has a a mandate to be a a barrier-free public service by 2040. Fisheries and Oceans is actually kind of trying to accelerate that mandate for the department. And we have what's called an accessibility action plan outlined that's kind of started from 2022 all the way to 2025. So we're in it now. And I mean, that's a whole kind of 60-page document that is publicly available if anyone wants to go and read it. But a lot of it, you know, comes down to a meeting WCAG, the latest WCAG, AA guidelines testing with diverse users with diverse needs. We are securing a contract with Fable right now. And I know a couple other departments have a contract with that group as well. So Fable is provides accessibility testing with various 
users with accessibility needs. And yeah, I would say it's pretty exciting, I guess is the word I'll use within the government, because I find a lot of time in the private sector, you feel like you're just, you know, throwing rocks out a window and nobody can hear you because it's not a mandate. Of course, you know, meeting WCAG is is a mandate, but having fully accessible products is not something that is the first thing on many stakeholders lists in the private sector. And so because we're not profit driven, we're driven by cost savings in some ways, yes, but not profit. That allows more space for accessibility and it allows us to prioritize it. We actually have a whole digital accessibility team that we're building. We have the leads starting for that in January and they'll be hiring designers who will be specifically focusing on that rather than being assigned to a product. They'll kind of have a more umbrella approach to all products and be, you know, advising, creating a ticketing system, consulting on an as needed basis. And we'll also have test specialists for that team as well. So a lot of exciting initiatives there. Going back to your career journey, can you share a project or accomplishment in your career that you're particularly proud of? I would say building this team has so far brought me the most joy in my career so far. We have, our team is doubling in size this week from two to four. Congratulations. Not including myself. Thank you. (laughs) So I finally have some designers to work with and we're trying to, you know, have a really solid onboarding plan. And we kind of started top down in the sense of hiring more senior designers as we bring in you know, to have that foundation of mentorship and support as we bring in more juniors. And then we have plans to bring in some co-op students. We're also looking at what's called the Digital Apprenticeship Program for Indigenous People. And I think all of these things have just been so exciting for me to finally have people who will be able to start creating these changes and making some waves for, (laughs) you know, to not to use a pun, but I feel like that is just the way it goes if you work at Fisheries and Oceans there. Everything. I think it's also very interesting, the opportunities for juniors and the apprenticeship programs. I know right now it's very difficult if you're a junior to come into an industry mm-hmm. and having that opportunity, especially you, your department is hiring so many people and has been hiring so many people for the past few months. It's really, I think, interesting and amazing on behalf of the government in a way that they want to train and give opportunities for people who are just coming into the industry. Yeah, no, I, it's something I'm I'm really grateful for. I feel like I came in at a really wonderful time with lots of opportunity. And, you know, as much as I was a little nervous, I'd say about kind of maybe letting go about of some of the more creative work and individual contributor and, you know, like, Pushing pixels late at night always brings a little bit of internal peace that I can't replicate anymore. <laughs> but I find that's honestly just I've been kind of proven wrong. Like there's so much creativity that comes from leading people and finding out what they need. And we're really working together on this. Like my collaboration is such a central value of our team. And I think that with that mindset, you know, it, it doesn't have to end. You can be creative anywhere and in any role. And I find your output is always going to be better for it in some ways. And as a designer, you bring your creativity wherever you go and you try to insert it into your job anywhere, even though sometimes there are a lot of limitations to it. And I think that's the 
best part about being a designer as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where do you see the future of UX heading, particularly in the context of government and, you know, fisheries and oceans Canada? I think, again, it's it's an incredibly exciting time. We're on the verge of something massive. At least that's what it feels like to me. I think this is something people have been asking for indirectly or very directly for a long time. And it's exciting to see it happen in other departments where, you know, they've launched some products. I mean, even the CRA has been going through a massive transformation with UX and and that is is visible to the public in some ways. And I think what UX can do for the government is really kind of unite Canadians in a way and really kind of build that trust that we have in each other and our government. And I think we also have the ability to kind of embrace some of the emerging technologies and and really make them valuable and useful and accessible to the public and people who may be kind of apprehensive or again like not trusting of these emerging technologies because we've kind of audited and, and done the work in advance for them. So that's also something that's been kind of a pleasant surprise for me is kind of the adoption of even something like AI within the government. I was, you know, w- ready to wait like 10 years and just be kind of using it on <laughs> on the side of my desk, but no, they're, they're fully on board and kind of ready to, to bring these things in and go through that digital transformation. So I'm really kind of thrilled to be a part of that. I think it's very interesting how our expectations of work in government is quite different than when you actually start working in it and you see that, hey, they do want to make advancements, you know, they do want to bring all these changes. So based on what you're telling me, I think there's a lot of hope. And, you know, we're looking forward to making and bringing those advancements and new technologies to the public from the government as well. Yeah, it is definitely a little more Wild West. And I say that in a good way than I expected. And it really is just, you know, using all of the resources you've, all of the things you would ever learn in your life to kind of decide how you would navigate this. And there's as much as there is boundaries and red tape and politics in the government. There's a lot of people right now, and I think this is just a theme of the whole world who are ready for change and are cognizant that it needs to happen. It's not it's not an if, it's not a when, it's it's a now, if that makes sense. So the the cha- the taste is there and people are making things happen. The cogs are turning in the machine. This is good news for us. I think so. <laughs> and what's your go-to UX design tool if you have one and what is something that you use almost in your daily work? I, I think what I'll say for this now is, of course, you know, I I am a, a paying a paying user of Figma on my personal account as it is, and I, I use Framer as well. And I'm have always been thrilled by, I, yeah, I could talk about it forever, but have always been really excited by those tools, and I use them quite regularly. Figma every day, Framer, you know, when I get the chance. But what I will say for this answer is actually ChatGPT. I use it pretty much every day. I, strangely enough, have been having a conversation. I was asking my therapist about this because I was like, I swear, like I've been doing a lot of work on kind of nervous system resetting, nervous system healing on my own accord. And I feel like that tool, what those learnings that I've had from that, I've really brought with me into my day-to-day work as, as a UX designer. And one of those things is ChatGPT, I would just kind of quite literally chat with it and, you know, say kind of like, 
can I make a nickname for you? Can I, I don't know, just have like completely random conversations unrelated to work. And I was, I just had this thought that I was like, that must be kind of stimulating my social nerve, like getting that energy flowing that stimulates like social engagement, creativity, confidence in other ways by just having those like little interactions with this little guy behind a screen. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, you know, I I use it every day to just to kind of get that juice flowing in my brain. And then I use it quite, you know, lot, I guess, in a more logical way to kind of help me work through complex proposals that I have to write logo memorandums, things that, you know, it's, it's kind of you're doing yourself a disservice nowadays, if you don't, at least, this is, again, very personal opinion, but, (laughs) but if you don't at least kind of explore that, and it helps me also kind of work through things that are a little bit more emotionally taxing, which I find strange. But you know, again, like you're working with a lot of complex stakeholder relationships in the government, and sometimes Sometimes there's a way you need to say things and it doesn't always feel the best, but sometimes if I can run it through ChatGPT, I realize this is the only way to say it. I'm still being professional and I just have to deliver this information. That's more important than, you know, protecting this person and the world's all fluffy and not going to hurt them. I think that it's a really powerful tool to just get my thoughts out and, and brainstorm ultimately. And of course, just to be very clear about that, if we can't be having any classified information in ChatGPT, like it always has to be very much in accordance with the policies. And I'm very careful using it that way. And any AI that we integrate into our work has to be kind of identified as such, like an AI tool was used to generate some of this text, for example, having those clauses in your work just to kind of protect yourself and anyone who may be involved. So it's a great tool, but definitely proceed with caution, I think. I think it's very useful as well. And I like the way you say it, you know, you just, if you need the help, you go and you look for help in it as well. And you, yeah. I think it, it definitely enriches our life and helps us better. Yeah. And looking ahead, what kind of legacy or impact do you hope to leave, uh, to leave through your work in UX design? When I read this question, I kind of thought back to the conference where you and I met, Canucks, yeah, the Can you Canucks conference. Yeah. yeah. And I remember there was actually one talk on AI. And there was a moment in that slideshow where it was kind of showing how I think it was virtual reality was used for children who were burn victims. And it will kind of put them in this icy cold space with all these penguins and snowmen and it actually kind of proven to kind of decrease pain and help them with coping and totally correct me if this was not at that conference and this is just a random memory but I'm pretty sure it was and so you know when I saw that that was something that immediately kind of spoke to me as like this is this is exactly why I'm here this is why I almost went into healthcare and then sidestepped to UX because I, I always have been just mind blown by emerging technology and kind of the next new thing, the next new space to create a story and tell a story. And I think there's so much opportunity to do that in government. In fisheries and oceans, I mean, I think of the really complex relationship that this department has with the Indigenous people of Canada and how by 
bringing their ways of working and ways of being into our UX practice, we can actually kind of, you know, help tell their story. I mean, they don't need help telling it, of course, but help integrate it into these like workflows that feel so regimented in some ways and make those changes and kind of start to repair that relationship in a way that goes beyond reconciliation. Something like that, you know, brings me so much motivation to to work towards. And again, yeah, just being able to integrate some of these emerging technologies and work on those and bring changes to places like healthcare or, you know, again, these people who are working at sea and away from home and have these crazy livelihoods that are so far from my own, but making things better in their life with something that they they might not have expected and they might not have come across in, you know, their daily work as a lobster fisherman, for example. So I think there's ultimately, you know, I guess my legacy is just I, I want to help people with this work, but I also want to show them to share with them the kind of thrill and excitement and fulfillment that I get from delving into this technology and help them do it in a way that, you know, they feel it's fully accessible to them. They feel safe using it and they feel like it adds benefit to their life ultimately. So, yeah. So curious about the next question. And if you had to sum up your design philosophy in just a few words, what would it be? I, I thought about this and I think it ultimately comes down to one of the first things I read when I began studying UX and it was from the Google Coursera course. Um, and it's part of Google's, uh, I, I guess design they have a branch that I works think you mentioned, right? On, yeah, there's there's yeah. a design certificate, but I think they have a branch that focuses on this. And it's, you know, that mindset of designing for the next billion users. And what I love about that, what I actually like about it even more since the conference we both attended, again, this comes back to that, is that I don't want to always think of users as people necessarily. Of course, I want to include all people of all needs, of all backgrounds, but also start to include the world we live in and other users. We're, we're looking a lot about, you know, preserving these ecos, aquatic ecosystems right now with fisheries and oceans and protecting our coastline. And what does that look like in UX? What does it look like to design a system that protects endangered species? And I don't know if that's what they were necessarily going for when they said design for the next billion users, but I think it really summarizes, you know, thinking of mobile first communities as well. It really just keeps my perspective open, wide and accepting of all of the possibilities. And I think that's what I want to embody with my design work is, is just creating designs that don't close the door on things that people, places, things need from those designs and just, again, keeping them accessible, but also scalable and just something that can multiply into a beautiful ecosystem that serves needs and meets wants and solves problems. It's, I like how you say it. It's looking at the bigger picture, not only what's in front of you, but what does it's not only about the people that you're designing for, but the ecosystem and a lot of the systems around that as well. And yeah, it's a very interesting approach of look at the big picture instead of just what's in front of you and have that tunnel vision. Yeah. 
And what do what advice do you have for aspiring designers, especially those that want to work in industries like like you know fisheries in Canada, fisheries and oceans Canada, or even government? I would say stay true, work on your authenticity. I say work on it because it's something that, you know, I'm 30 and I feel like I'm just starting to get there for myself. And I've really tried intentionally put a lot of work into that. Practice storytelling, take an improv class if you need to. I did lean into that because that will make a difference. People are visual creatures, but people are emotional creatures. And if you can tell your story in a compelling way, that will win. Like 99% of the time, like not to throw statistics at it, but I just, that's been my experience and it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Stay true. Remain authentic. Find ways to exercise that. Another tip, I mean, this is just like a, a little tip of like doing the, the crazy monkey dance to like reset your nervous system before you're doing an interview or anything. Any the monkey dance. Yeah. I won't demonstrate, but you can interpret as you will. Yeah, to, to get that blood flowing before, if you're doing a big executive presentation, even if you're just doing a demo presentation, something that you're recording for your portfolio, do those exercises, lean into humor. Don't be afraid of, of leaning into something that, that brings you joy because people will see that. And, and when they see authenticity and realness, that triggers trust. And people want to hire people who they can trust at the end of the day. Yeah, and just keep flipping over rocks, flip over every rock, find good bugs. There are always good bugs under unexpected rocks. And from my experience so far, like I've had certain people reach out to me and be very intentional, but not overbearing with what they've reached out. Like, oh, I I found you through this or so-and-so recommended just, again, I've seen this a lot, but just like, you know, say where you found me from. But I'm always so glad to see that because I'm like, that person is flipping over every rock. And they're doing it in a methodical, intentional way. And yeah, statistically, like you're going to increase your chances of finding a job, of finding someone who's um, a valuable addition to your network. But it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage, I suppose, to do that. Cause like there are some scary things under rocks too, like giant millipedes and you never know, <laughs> but just flip them over. We don't want to meet those, but they no. always come up in our way. <laughs> they're always there. And I don't know, someone out there finds them cute, I'm sure. So not to, not to pigeonhole them is ugly but this is a great piece of advice especially we hear a lot about you know being true to yourself staying authentic and storytelling we hear about storytelling so much as designers but really it's a reminder for us that you know if you show up authentically people will feel it and as you really nicely mentioned it's going to build trust and that's very important especially in the work that we do because we at the end of the day you know, we have to empathize with users. We have to kind of like make them feel like, yeah, we are on your side. We want to do the work that will improve your life. So it's a really, really great piece of advice you've shared. Thank you. And thank you so much, Ariel. Those are all my questions for you. It was really, I've learned even so much by, by what you shared today. And I'm looking forward to seeing what, you know, how you are going to guide your career and the impact that you're going to bring on the industry as well. Thank you so much, Christina. This was really wonderful and I can't wait to see where you go with it. That wraps up today's episode of the UX Curious Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more exciting discussions about UX in various industries. 
See you next time, and as usual, stay UX curious.